Welcome to the Fine Flow Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McDermott, and today we have Emily Arnott with us. And uh, Emily is a community relations manager at Blameless, where she fosters a place for discussing the latest in SRE. She's also presented at SRECon, Conf42, and Chaos Carnival. I never actually heard of Chaos Car- Carnival. Um, Emily, what is Chaos Carnival? It's uh, one that's all focused on chaos engineering practices. So in the SRE space, you know, we're um, overlapping a lot with those kind of principles. And it was enough that they accepted our talk. So that was great. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So uh, so you're with Blameless, uh, software vendor headquartered out of uh, San Francisco. You're out of Toronto. So today I just wanted to, uh, you've written a lot of really interesting pieces on um SRE and and less around the technical side, but more around the cultural side. So, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about what you do at Blameless around uh, as a community relations manager. Well, I'm trying to kind of just spread the good word of SRE in all sorts of shapes and forms. Because uh, what we find is that a lot of people kind of come into SRE very ad hoc. They have like really specific pain points. They want really specific solutions, and that's great. SRE will really up level you when you kind of have that approach. Um, but at Blameless, we really want SRE philosophy to spread as much as the actual technical practices. Uh, so my role is a lot of looking into what engineers are doing, really kind of drilling into why they're doing that, um, and coming up with ways to motivate it, not just in kind of like practical beat-by-beat beat terms, but as an overall holistic kind of ideology of prioritizing liability, being blameless, of course, um, and really taking every opportunity to learn. Uh, so I kind of have this sort of gospel of SRE that I like to spread through blogs and through talks and through outreach to people. Excellent. So uh, I've got a several topics I want to catch up with you on. Uh, mm-hmm. One is, you know, that you know we've talked prior uh, about, you know, kind of learning from incidents. So mm. you, I think you guys call it retrospectives. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the old adage, you know, you learn more from your failures than from your successes. So exactly. if you apply that to incident management. So I'll say incident management because I'm an old guy and that's what we've been calling it for the last 30 years. Um, <laughs> but uh, in the terms of how to manage incidents, uh, and, and you've kind of mentioned this 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 idea of incident uh, response and uh, retroactive uh, analysis as kind of the driver of change. So talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that first. Well, what we figure is like, okay, things are gonna go wrong inevitably, right? There's no software in the world that's just perfect. And if it was, it would mean that it's never changing. As you grow, as you serve more customers, as your service expands, things are gonna break. So we just want to embrace that. Our our philosophy is like, you need to make something good out of these lemons that are being given to you. Um, So our our main tool for that, as you mentioned, is the retrospective. Um, so we think that after every single incident, it's worth going back, drilling down into all of the causes, all of the factors that led up to it, and then making systemic change. And this is the really key piece. There should always be follow-up tasks from each incident. You know, why did that break in the first place? Are we underspending on server infrastructure? Do we need to spin up more servers? Do we need to expand our cloud plan? Uh, is it that we're pushing code through production too quickly and it's ending up buggy that we don't have a long enough QA cycle? So it's not even just kind of like specific bugs for each incident. Um, it's more like what kind of philosophical change can we make? What kind of process change can we make 
to prevent this entire like class of incidents from happening again. I like to see it as kind of like uh, a domino effect. You know, you might have one small outage, um, but in the end, this can reveal like a huge kind of fundamental issue with kind of how you design your system in the first place, uh, which can sound intimidating, sure. Uh, but uh, we think incidents are the perfect time to dive into that stuff. Yeah, I think that works. It really folds well into the whole SRE philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking about um, reliability as an engineering discipline, right? Because where, where I came from, you know, 25 years ago, we had monitoring systems and a bunch of people sitting inside of Knox looking mm -hmm. at screens mm -hmm. and just trying to fix stuff and move on to the next, where mm -hmm. SRE is really about uh, bringing engineering disciplines into the the operational environment, meaning how can we look for improvements? It's just like, you know, as a software developer, I, I've started and, and exited a few software companies and that's the entire process, right? It's like you have, you have a, a um, communication with your customers, you have bugs coming in, feature enhancements, and it's all about improvement of the infrastructure, right? Improvement mm -hmm. of the application and the service. So um, that's a, that's a paradigm shift, I think, for a lot of organizations now. Um, Absolutely. And what, what I'm seeing, you know, having been in operations for 25, 30 years, is that operations always kind of lags mm. engineering, right, mm -hmm. in traditional thing. So as companies are moving fast into the cloud, the operations teams are sometimes years behind in understanding how to manage that. Right, it's much more fun to build stuff and put it out there um, mm. than it is to you know management's always come an afterthought, right? So it's really about aligning that now to the operations and closing that gap of understanding about how do we um, how do we improve our product and how do we take information. Mm -hmm, and unfortunately, mm -hmm. sometimes the best way to get to improve your product is where it's, is understanding where it fails. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, no, it's uh, it used to be very reactive. As you said, like it used to be very spot by spot, you know, putting out fires as they arise. And it's actually really fascinating. Um, a big inspiration for companies like Google that were really at the forefront of SRE as it was developing. Um, they looked to inspiration from like aerospace, medicine, companies like Toyota uh, that started thinking about we need to bake reliability into the entire manufacturing process. Um, thinking, you know, it's not enough to put out a million cars and some percentage of them fail. And then we address why they failed after we need to have that set up that expectation from day one of the development process. So I think it's really fascinating the way that software engineering can kind of lead the way in a lot of ways, but then also looks to traditional manufacturing for a lot of these ideas. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a paradigm shift and we're seeing that with our customers, right? Because, mm -hmm. Um, like I said, having been around for a while, um, I've seen so much of systems or applications being built and kind of thrown over the, the wall to operations oh, yeah. to say, go manage yeah. it. And Good luck. <laughs> they don't have the tools. They don't have the instrumentation. They don't have the understanding. They don't have the context really of, of what they're doing. I mean, mm -hmm. I've seen some projects get derailed for nine months because they weren't operationally ready. And mm -hmm. um, that could have been avoided had they brought the operations team into the conversation a year and a half earlier 
even during the architectural stage of helping them exactly. understand how do we instrument this along the way. Um, so as part of the incident management, you know, process, right? You, uh, you wrote something that I found kind of interesting around incident command, right? Mm. So what exactly is that as, you know, I, I'm more familiar with the idea of incident management, but what is mm -hmm. incident command and does it change from outage to outage? Uh, I would say to an extent, yes, uh, the role of incident command is going to be very particular to each incident. Um, but at the same time, the incident commander, if we kind of think about, we're putting a specific person in the role of administrating the whole incident management process, um, which is often very helpful on a practical level. Um, we actually had a little webinar recently where we brought in a few SREs to discuss incident command. Um, and one analogy that someone gave really stuck out to me that incident command is kind of like the first aid stage that you see the, this might get a little grim, the proverbial body lying on the ground. <laughs> uh, obviously there's been some accident, some medical uh, emergency. And we find in real life that a lot of times what happens is people kind of panic. Uh, you run into like the bystander effect where everyone assumes someone else in the crowd will take action. And really what's needed is someone who can very quickly start to diagnose, um, understand the severity of the situation and start giving out some orders. Um, so in first aid, they always tell you, tell someone specific, say you in the red shirt, you call 911. And similarly, the incident command role is sort of going, I'm gonna ping three engineers, these specific three engineers, and I'm gonna tell them to start working on the diagnostics. I'm going to ping this specific person and tell them to start handling communications with management. Um, so really quickly assessing like what is the scope of what's needed and who needs to be involved and roughly what do they need to do. Um, there's kind of a tendency to think of incident command as being, you know, completely in charge. Um, but analogously, you don't want the first aid person to like also be there administering surgery. They, they're not going to be sitting at the bedside table for nights and days. Um, it's about kind of setting up something to delegate, to have the big picture without getting lost in those details. Uh, so this is again, sort of like a paradigm shift in how incident management is handled. Um, because for a long time, I think the idea was you have someone on call that responds and they're kind of in charge and they're gonna be handling everything until the incident is sort of wrapped up and resolved. Uh, but we're encouraging this more kind of dynamic role-based attack on the incident um, where not one person is going to feel all of that weight and all of that pressure, but instead you can kind of distribute it out tasks and cover a lot of ground more effectively. So does that mean that you've got to kind of fundamentally develop a training plan and a process for incident command, right? Because just, just your example uh, somebody you're responsible for uh, communicating with leadership. Mm. Well, they have to understand what that means, right? They have, to, mm -hmm. they have to know, they have to be trained. So does everybody get kind of trained on these different things because they might be in a different role? Or are you always the communication guy? You're always the the data storage guy. You're always mm. that. And, um, and, and how does the command change from the sense of, do you, do, you, do you say, well, based on this incident, let's say I'm the guy on call, 
you know, it might be, look, you know, based on some initial analysis, I think the outage is related to um, load balancers. Um, let, I'm going to sign it to to Cindy because Cindy is our person in load balance, you know, really the load balancing expert. I'm going to make her the commander and and then I play a subordinate role to her as she mm. starts delegating. Is that how it works? I'd say that's a very good example. Um, the one difference I would point out, though, is is kind of as you suggested at the start, people should be trained to handle like a very diverse set of roles. We never want kind of like a single point of failure where you go, oh, well, uh, Cindy's out of the office. <laughs> Nobody else really knows how to well, handle Cindy this doesn't get vacation, stuff. so she's good. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so we, we do kind of want everyone to feel comfortable handling all areas of the service, um, which of course is a tall ask um, to, to have every one of your engineers expert in everything. So in the end, we do know that there will be subject matter experts and that you need to escalate to them and bring them in with their specific knowledge. Um, but one thing I would point out is that you don't actually want those people to be in the incident command role. If you have the Cindy person who knows everything about load balancers, she should actually just be brought in to do the diagnostics, to work through those run books, uh, to try fixes in the load balancer. And incident command should be handled by someone um, who can focus more on that big picture perspective um, without you know, Cindy needing to distract herself by delegating or checking in on other tasks. Um, so we, we really like to think of this incident management process as not being like a hierarchy. Um, it's not just about kind of linear escalation to someone who's more senior than you or more expert than you, um, but really strategically calling in and being like, okay, can you work on this one problem? I know it takes a while, but can you like run through all of these error logs and try to sort that out? Um, and kind of just more um, like task by task, role by role bringing people in. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thing, right? So many, many years ago, uh, I actually went through uh, Army Boot Camp as part of an ROTC program. Oh my gosh, okay. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a lifetime ago. And as part of it, we formed small platoons, you know, eight to 10 people. And over the course of a couple of weeks, we would rotate command of those platoons, you know? Oh, so interesting. that's kind of an interesting concept because you look at it and say, look, you know, and what it allows you to do is allows everybody to kind of take a lead role at some point, mm -hmm. right? Um, but also, it um, it allows you to to also be a follower, right? And learn how to be mm -hmm. a follower. So that's that's an interesting interesting concept. So let's shift gears a little bit um, mm -hmm. to an area that um, I have a love hate relationship with this this area. But you you write you you recently you recently wrote about kind of language. And this mm -hmm. is really important to me uh, because it drives me crazy when we don't get taxonomy right. And even inside of my own companies or some of my clients, we use words kind of all around. And at one point, someone's saying the word product and another one's saying using product in a different context. And I'm like, okay, we got to stop and define what these terms mean because we're mm -hmm. all using them differently and it's confusing. And I know that sometimes my staff gets gets annoyed with me when I do that, but it's important to me that we all are on the same page. So, you know, you wrote this whole thing about language and terminology. So I'd love to kind of get your thoughts around that in terms of SRE and 
some of the new terminology that's coming out in the mm-hmm. SRE world. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's pretty interesting. And and the specific example you gave resonates with me. I've noticed people use project, product, service, system, all four of those <laughs> somewhat interchangeably. And then at other times, it's like very, very specifically that you're saying this service is down, but not that service, but the system is down, <laughs> um, but not that product. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's so even you're, difficult, you're more difficult, right? right? When you're dealing mm-hmm. with clients who have definitions of services differently. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. have to change to their definition and their, you know, so we might be working on a CMDB effort, you know, with service now. And they'll say, oh, we've got 1800 services. And I'm like, so I always stop and say, what is your definition of a service? Yeah. Yeah. Is that one function or feature in a project or is that 1800 projects themselves? I don't know. It's, it is fascinating. And I think what's interesting to me and what I ended up writing about is that this language has like real cultural ramifications down current as well. Um, so this is kind of like a light example. Probably nobody's actually getting upset about this. Um, but if you told someone, oh, you're working on like a feature, I think that resonates differently than saying, oh, you're working on a new service or you're working on a new product. Um, it's a minor thing, um, but you know, psychology is so grounded in language. Uh, so an example that I wrote about it in that article, we talked a lot about retrospectives before, but a few years ago, the very common term for that was postmortem. Um, and we just kind of found that postmortem really didn't have the associations we wanted with doing that work. A postmortem feels uh, very much like the situation is over. Um, something really terrible happened, and now we're just kind of rummaging around trying to make sense of it. Um, whereas retrospective is kind of like we're starting from some point in the past and moving forward. Uh, we're still going to make changes. There's still something good that can come of this. There's going to be some transformation and improvement based on what we learned in the retrospective. Whereas you, you really can't imagine the, the analogy with a postmortem going that way, right? You're not going to find something in the body that brings it back to life, say. <laughs> um, so just little things like that, like changing just one word in our program and in all of our messaging, um, I think has made it a lot easier to encourage this as a practice and that places are a lot more receptive to going, oh yeah, let's do a retrospective. It kind of feels light. It kind of feels <laughs> encouraging rather than, oh geez, it's time for the postmortem. <laughs> yeah, well, postmortem, as you said in that article, <laughs> as you said in that article, you know, kind of connotates death, right? And that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's not um, not something that people really want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't. It's hard to get positive about that, right? But the the retrospective, you know, and you hear you hear about retrospectives in music all the time, right? So yeah, let's go back it's and kind of celebratory. A, yeah, yeah, let's have a seventies retrospective of you know ABBA. You know, uh, that mm-hmm. sounds fun. Let's have the um, great outage of fall 2021 retrospective. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's also interesting, like what you said about feature product service, right? And mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, am I lower because I'm working on or doing something less significant if I'm working on a feature versus, you know, I'm working on a product you know? mm-hmm. and I get it right. Because I, you know, as a, as a, entrepreneur and having started software, several software companies, you know, there's always been this kind of thing bantered around in industries. Like, are you building a feature or are you building mm. a platform? 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, you can build a feature that can make millions of dollars, but nobody really wants to be the CEO who has their investor come in and says, well, we see you more as a feature, you know, if you spend, mm. you know, years of your life building something. So I get it. That, that makes sense. So, um, so the last thing I wanted to kind of touch on is really, you know, you also wrote an article about tooling, right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, buy versus build versus open source. And we get this question a lot. Mm. In the past, we used to, we used to deal a lot with kind of build versus buy. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you go back 15 years ago, the open source community really wasn't as nearly as robust as it is right now. Um, And then open source started coming into our clients. Most of our clients are all fortune 500, right? So they're big, big companies. And we used to do a lot of work out in Silicon Valley with some of the, you know, big, you know, software companies out there and they'll build whatever they want. Right. And they, right, right. they have a That's buy, the they have yeah. a build strategy versus anything else. Cause they can build anything better than everybody else. Um, whether that's true or not, doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, but you know, now, you know, we're seeing companies with more options and mm-hmm. I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on that. Cause I think you, you guys, you, you kind of articulated that well. Yeah. I think, um, people certainly see building as the ideal, which makes a lot of sense because it's perfectly integrated with everything else you've got going on. It's proprietary, you know, it's not going to change unexpectedly. Um, it's going to have every single feature you could ever dream of, assuming you had the time to code them in. Um, it's very easy to have this sort of ideal of our in-house built platform for X, Y, and Z things. Um, but what we find is that, especially with something like reliability, which is like critical to have underneath your feet every single step of the way, uh, it opens up a lot of risks to just kind of assume okay, we'll just keep adding features as we need them. We'll, we'll keep up with issues. Um, because in the end, if this tool that you're building breaks, that's also on you to fix it. Uh, whereas with a third-party tool, um, hopefully at least <laughs> you've got some sort of customer support, you've got a team of developers that are responding to your requests, uh, that are fixing bugs, that are keeping it up to date with what you need. Um, so it's, it's interesting too, that we, we have always kind of associated these giga enterprises with totally in-house. Um, but there's sometimes less, uh, in-house that, that you might imagine. Um, I actually gave a talk recently. Uh, this is the one you mentioned at chaos carnival. That was all about like black swan events. Uh, so incidents so gigantic and staggering that you couldn't even have imagined them coming. Uh, that they were as unimaginable as kind of like a black swan. Um, but this this is a kind of like an economics term, I think, originally, mm-hmm. um, talking about these unforeseen crises. And one of the things that we learned about when researching for this talk is that a lot of places will use both an in-house tool and then a third-party tool as like a backup. Um, that this sort of hybrid model where in the end you can't even rely fully on yourselves that if you have such an outage that even your diagnostic tool goes offline and your communication tool goes offline and everything else that you've been relying on that you built yourself all kind of has this united point of failure being yourself, um, that it can be really, really useful to still have some third-party integrations and some some third-party tools. 
Um, so in the end, it's, it's not even so much that you ever decide, oh, this is the one path, but you kind of just work back and forth of building up some customized tools that do exactly what you need. And then also relying on third-party tools that have a lot of advantages um, to kind of cover like the foundation of what you need to be doing. Yeah, I think I think the I think the world has changed a lot over the last you know fifteen years, twenty years with regards to this. And I think it also depends on sectors, right? So we mm-hmm. see we see a fair amount of custom built tooling in financial services, for example, mm. because they have the resources to do it. And some of their technology is so um, differentiating and competitive, right? The applications that they're building for trading Mm, um, and how mm. the speed and the velocity in which they measure things is so minute that there might be, um, they can't find a third-party vendor that can actually do some of the monitoring of these these microtransactions and things like that. But generally, I... I am much a believer of buy strategy mm-hmm. uh, because in the end, um, where do you want to be spending your resources? And if you're going to build something, it's incredibly expensive. You know, having mm-hmm. built three software companies, I know. And if you're going to do it right, it's an, it's expensive, right? It's a whole new discipline on how you develop versus how do you manage. And, uh, and then, like you said, if it breaks, then, you know, yeah, it's on it's you, on you. Mm-hmm. where I think that I think that probably the, the best scenario going forward. Right. And and we'll talk a little bit about blameless in a second is this idea that you can buy a third party because the reality is, is that any software you buy um, is built for the masses. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're a software company, you have to build for the mass, which means that you lose context from customer to customer. There's a certain amount of context gap between my requirements and what your product can do for me because you're building for the masses and I run a very specialized transportation company Mm -hmm. that's using some very unique technology for GPS and tracking that you don't currently have. So I got to fill that context gap, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Runbooks is a really interesting example, right? Because how you if you can build multiple run books, right. And manage your environment, then you start getting more automation and more value out of that platform. The reality though, is that it's hard, you know, it's time consuming to build run books in the context Mm -hmm. of your own business. So this idea of having a, um, software company with a community, (laughs) uh, crowdsource community that can build out some of this context. So it's like, look, I need to manage this t- particular service. I don't want to build a runbook myself. Can I log into the community? Can I find someone who's done something similar, pull mm-hmm. that down, make changes to it? And if I feel that it's not proprietary to myself after I'm done, I can push it back up into the community. So you mm-hmm. get the combination of both of that. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in, to hear your thoughts on that. And then I'd love to hear kind of a little bit as we wrap this up a little bit about blameless. Sure. Yeah. I I think that's a really beautiful idea. And uh, we see that kind of collaborativeness in a lot of open source spaces. Um, Usually, of course, with like development that everyone Mm -hmm. collaborates on some open source project or software library or codec or whatever. Um, And I would love to see the equivalent in reliability. And that's sort of something we're really hoping to foster 
because in the end, like reliability, it shouldn't be something where it needs to be a competitive differentiator, I guess. Uh, I think ideally we all want an internet that works consistently. We all want to be able to rely on our services and not feel like, oh, maybe there's a 60% chance that it's not going to be quite right today. Um, we want reliability to be kind of like that rising tide that lifts up all shifts. Um, so I, I think that's a great idea, like being able to openly collaborate on, okay, are you like an AWS shop? Are you running into an AWS outage? Here's 15 things that no matter kind of what the rest of your stack is are usually helpful to diagnose that. Um, so that would be really cool if we could start moving into that sort of space. Uh, I think an issue, as you said, is that sometimes these sorts of solutions can still end up very proprietary, um, which is why I really advocate these sorts of things being really holistic and agnostic. That is, you, you look at all sorts of contributing factors, um, even like cultural ones, um, and you really kind of think about uh, not just diagnosing, oh, what's the problem with the server, but how is the engineering team feeling? Uh, do people feel equipped with the right resources? Do people know who they should call if they don't know what to do and they're on call? Um, so just kind of building up this cultural practice around SRE, I think, <clears throat> is a good way to kind of start this collaborative reliability community. Um, yeah, well, and, I think yeah. you need critical mass, right, to get there, yes, right? Because course, yeah. it doesn't really work if there's five people doing it, right? Mm -hmm. um, it works if it's bigger. But I think you're right. I think I think what's exciting about you know SRE and just reliability in general is uh, it really is it's a organizational journey, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that it's you may have to relook at some of your tooling, you may have to look at your processes, you may have to look at skill sets of people and training mm -hmm. and and you may and you may have to provide additional career paths for people you know mm -hmm. how they how they can um accelerate and move through an sre you know career you know mm -hmm. so it's 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 interesting that um how this is going so tell me a little bit about blameless sure thing so blameless is kind of our encapsulation of all this philosophy in a helpful tool. Um, there's two major components to it. First is handling incidents themselves. So we integrate with Slack and MS Teams. And basically, if anyone on call notices that something's gone wrong, they can start a blameless incident. And this will automatically set up all sorts of helpful things for you, a channel to discuss the incident in, a Zoom link that you can hop on and collaborate through video, um, and then it'll start assigning checklists and roles to people uh, that whoever's in this command role can say, okay, you're on comms lead. And then right in their UI, it pops up with a list of things for them to do. Uh, so this can really kind of help you navigate the incident. Um, it integrates with run books that you have that it can pull up more specific technical details of things to diagnose and try. Um, we also have a cool feature, comms flow, that will automatically send out um, pre-templated communication to customers, to management, to any sort of stakeholders that uh, you want to keep in the loop, but you don't really want to break focus and type out a lengthy email and then come back and go, I have no idea what I was working on. Um, and then afterwards, we also have a large suite of tools to analyze your incidents. So retrospectives, which I talked about a lot, we have an automatic retrospective builder. It gathers all the communication that people have been talking about, 
um, all sorts of resources that people have been sharing around diagnostics, around monitoring. Um, and then you kind of build a library of these that you can go back on. And then it also pushes you forward with follow-up tasks that it can remind people, oh, you need to actually go back and implement this change now that was uncovered during the incident or uncovered working through the retrospective. Uh, and then finally, to kind of bring this all together, we also offer uh, a lot of statistics around incidents that you can look at overall trends of your system's health. You can go, oh, we're having a lot of really high severity incidents uh, every Friday morning. Let's, let's investigate that. Oh, we had an incident last week that took three times the normal length to resolve. Let's, let's look into that. What was so unique about this? It'll really kind of highlight these trends and outliers. Um, we also offer SLOs. Uh, this is uh, an area of SRE that we didn't cover too much in this interview, um, but basically it's like trying to really align everything down to customer satisfaction. That uh, the, the example I always give is like, if a service goes down in the middle of the woods, but nobody's using it, <laughs> did it really even go down? <laughs> um, kind of putting things in perspective of, okay, this service is only lagging a little bit, but literally every customer uses that. Maybe it's actually higher priority than a total outage of something that only 0.1% of users ever touch. Um, so just kind of being able to triage and put it in the context of what's actually causing our customers pain. Um, so that again is just sort of another um, thing built up upon having good incident response and having tools to learn from incidents. Awesome. Sounds like a mm -hmm. sounds like a really interesting uh, platform. Yeah, so, yeah. So Emily, I, I appreciate you coming on. Great, great conversation. Uh, I always like talking about SRE and people who are uh, knee deep in it in the industry. So uh, appreciate you coming on. And um, yeah, anybody, we can um, we'll put in the show notes uh, how to get a hold of you if anybody has any questions. We'll put in a, a link for Blameless in there too. Anyone wants to Thank learn you. any more? Anything else you want to you want to say before we sign off? Uh, no, just thank you so much for having me. Uh, it was a great conversation, and I love uh, educating people on SRE and beating my chest about how great it is. So, <laughs> anytime you'd like to have me, I'd be happy to come back. I appreciate thank it. You so thank you very much. <laughs> Take care, Emily. <laughs>